on Home Base Nation today is retired four-star Army General Fred Franks. Well, folks, it's two months before the 12th annual Run to Home Base. This will be September 25th, a Saturday. So register now for your 5K or 9K run walk. Um, Remember that all the proceeds go to the care for our veterans and military families so they can come in for programming at zero cost. Um, This is not only for up in New England, but Southwest Florida region and really throughout the country because As you may know, uh, our signature program is the intensive clinical program that brings in veterans from all over the 50 states and even internationally. So sign up now, runtohomebase.org. And Homebase Nation listeners, make sure you put in the promo code PODCAST in all caps, and you'll get five bucks off the registration fee. So let's get training, and we'll see you there. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Homebase Nation. This is Ron Hirschberg, your host. I'm really excited and honored to bring this conversation with General Franks to you today. We're going to take this conversation in two parts um, today and in a week from today. I was fortunate to come down to Homebase Southwest Florida two months ago and uh, meet with the team uh, led by Marine veteran Armando Hernandez and discuss programming and uh, all the great things going on as we uh, reach out to more than 110,000 veterans in the area um, in Southwest Florida and Central Florida. So the day before this conversation with General Franks, uh, we met and uh, it happened to be his alive day of 50 years, the day that he was injured in 1971 in Cambodia during the Vietnam War. So quite quite an emotional time, um, a time to reflect, a time to, uh, to discuss the importance of trust of leadership, um, and of course, taking care of of, of our troops and, and their families. And um, let me tell you a little bit about General Franks. So in 1959, he graduated West Point, and uh, General Franks went on to, to join the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, um, serving in Vietnam. He received multiple awards of valor, including two Purple Hearts, uh, the Silver Star and the Bronze Star Medal, and others. You know, as I said, he was injured in uh, 1971 and subsequently uh, had his left leg amputated. But he wanted to get back to the fight and, and command. And uh, you'll, hear, you'll hear about that and that, that transition. And after Vietnam and through the 80s, he, he served at the Pentagon and, and in the office of the Army Chief of Staff. Um, and then it came time for the Gulf War. In uh, the end of 1990, he was deployed overseas in, in Desert Storm, where he would he would really make his mark in history, leading what would be called uh, the left hook maneuver, where he and his troops were able to force the retreat of the Iraqi Republican Guard, with fewer than 100 American casualties lost. General Franks retired in 1994, serving as chairman of the board of the Seven Corps Desert Storm Veterans Association. And in 1997, he wrote a book with Tom Clancy called Into the Storm on the Ground in Iraq. So we're gonna we're gonna break up this conversation into two parts. And today you'll hear General Franks talk about trust and about leadership, and about what happened to him 50 years ago that was transformative in many ways. It wasn't easy, but losing his leg uh, gave some some repurpose and uh, triggering of uh, what he calls that blue flame that was lit that inspired him to get back into combat, get back into command. And as a Vietnam veteran, um, he'll he'll tell us about that very emotional day that he came to Fenway Park in 2017 and looked out to his uh, fellow comrades 
as they were thanked for for their service. One of the first times uh, he's ever witnessed that in his whole career, actually. We'll end part one, uh, setting the stage for that time in 91 in the Gulf when he led his troops into Kuwait to uh, fight off the Iraqi Republican Guard, which incidentally is 30 years ago this year. So thank you to my guest, General Fred Franks, and thank you all for joining us today. It's really an honor to to sit with you here, and right in uh, Kensington Club, right in Naples, where I know it's uh, another home away from home for you. It is that, Ron, and thank you, and thanks. It's a real honor to be to be doing this for home base and for all our veterans and families. And it is nice to be. actually. I I attribute uh, home base Southwest Florida as Kensington as a birthplace mm. uh, because it was our uh, fundraising event in 2014 right after that uh we raised a modest amount of money a little less than a hundred thousand dollars and we had been wanting to get something going here so i met with dr larry ronan sure in february and and his medical staff up at jet blue i met with larry and said we've got to do something here in southwest florida right now we're scheduled to have a three to five day physical training, PT, wellness event here in the Red Sox facilities at JetBlue, we really need to do something more permanent for our veterans and families here in Southwest Florida. And so Larry mm. said, well, why don't we do a wellness physical training? A lot of us have thought that'd be a good entry point for veterans and families. I said, okay, let's do it. And let's get it going before the 4th of July. And this was mm-hmm. February. 2014. And this was physically where we are in Kensington. Uh, you think about uh, a place where people come together. I know with uh, Dr. Ronan had uh, in his hat that he wears many multiple hats, but uh, up in Mass General and working as a Red Sox doc, um, uh, sort of an extended family when you think about it from the beginnings of home base in Boston at 20, 2009. Yes connecting the dots five years later with you, sir, um, and building this. And you mentioned entry point, which is interesting because, you know, Ryan Vanderweed, Army veteran up north in, in, in Boston, always talks about that, that barrier to entry that can be an even field and get veterans together, regardless of right. what they may be storing inside. Very true. It's it been my good fortune to have been with Home Base since the beginning in 2009. So I knew Home Base was there with Dr. Parrish. We, he got it all going and veteran outreach. And and I had known, of course, PTSD and TBI even before it was named that from my Vietnam experience and personal experience. Of course. Uh, and then seeing uh, PTSD given a formal medical name and 1980, and as a because I, I knew veterans from that Vietnam era, who obviously had been affected by the what I now knew were the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, and then thinking back to my own childhood, growing up, mm. and my own relatives from and friends from World War II, now thinking back on some of their behaviors mm. after World War II. Uh, you know, there was a hesitancy for veterans to come and ask for help. And so we thought that 
physical training, PT, wellness, sleep, nutrition was a natural thing that veterans had done while they were in military service. Absolutely. For the mission. So yeah. it was something they could quickly identify with and be around other veterans in a friendly, veteran-safe environment. Right. And if it occurred to them that they needed more than this for their own wellness and well-being, then, of course, we had other avenues that we could get them that assistance. And and I would see that, I mean, I see that clearly as sort of putting on the, the doc hat, but what I think is fascinating is not only the barrier to entry to get the services, but the fact that the fitness and mindfulness and yoga and nutrition and, and, and art therapy is actually treatment in and of itself. It's, it's I would call it, in some sense, it's therapy in disguise. Yes. I, I, totally, I totally subscribe to that. Well, if you feel good about yourself physically, that you're sleeping okay, uh, and you're eating well, uh, then you're starting to feel a little better self-worth. And so there's, there's healing. There's definitely healing in that. And we, we know all that. Kensington reminds me certainly of 2017 when Homebase had the honor to create the General Frank's, General Friend Frank's Endowment. And that was also an interesting year because I was there in the stands when we welcomed, I hate to say, one of the, the only welcomes for the Vietnam veterans. Yes. You know, I think it was uh, so poignant to hear a four-star general talk about how over 50 years you had not even been involved in, these, in this type of ceremony. That was the first public event I ever attended with fellow Vietnam veterans where anybody said thanks from Vietnam officially ended 1975, we're talking 2017. And I was there on the field at Fenway Park with my fellow Vietnam veterans, some of whom were in wheelchairs, with our family members. And uh, looking up and hearing, seeing flags, hearing the fans all cheering, and then the flag rolling down in the left field and the national anthem, <laughs> the flyover, and they... <laughs> They told, I think it was a Massachusetts Air National Guard, they told them they couldn't do the missing man formation, mm. but they did it anyway. <laughs> God bless them. And, and Ron, I'll, I'll tell you, it was, was I, I'm still, you hear it in my voice, I'm still, throat closes over thinking about it now, and, and just met and shook the hands of everybody I could just to meet them. When did you, you know, the normal things veterans talk yeah. about. And Vietnam veterans normally say to each other, welcome home. Because there was none of that mm. when Vietnam veterans came home. And uh, no, not the only one, but uh, lit a hot blue flame in me to the rest of my life to, to help restore that trust. And that, that day was restoring that trust. You between, felt that? Yes, I did. And, and not just you as someone who's commanded platoons to regiments over years, but you felt that connection with your brothers and Absolutely. sisters. We all did. I mean, yeah. there was a lot of hugs. and uh, I remember I got the opportunity. There was a place right across the street from Fenway where mm. they had lunch that day. 
like a barbecue place. Had a nice lunch, and everybody gathered in there before we oh, got yeah. outside to walk onto the field. And they so we said, come on, we're going to have a little program. Would you like to say a few things yeah. to your fellow veterans? And I, I remember walking out on the stage and looking up and seeing all my fellow Vietnam veterans out there. And uh, it was, uh, you know, I could, uh, <laughs> as I say, I, I, you, you, uh, you're overcome with the emotion and the years and the, sure. and all of all of them and what they did. They went and they were the sons and daughters of World War II generation who sure. went and did what their country asked and did it with great skill and courage, equal to any generation of Americans anywhere. And I, I, I knew all that, and I experienced, had experienced in the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, the Black Horse, and, and to see all that and to see them and to be able to tell them, as, as one of them, uh, thank you. And I had seen, while, while we were waiting in line to get in, mm -hmm. there was a veteran from Massachusetts had a Vietnam veteran, mm. no regrets, mm. cap. Yeah. And so... I said, where'd you get that? He said, I had that made. And uh, so <laughs> uh, I just, just two days ago, Ron, I was going through a few things to get, you know, getting ready to talk to you in our meeting yesterday. And, and I ran across a note that I got from him. I had given him my address. And he said, we heard you speak and we thought you would like to have one of these caps that we wear. I have it at home. I've worn it out here, <laughs> you know, around Kensington, Vietnam. No regrets. They didn't have any regrets. They went and did what they asked. Proudly did it. And and they were kids, and they were they they were asked, and they stood up. Yes, they and, did. You know, uh, what what what's really impressed upon me, and the uh, sort of that blue flame that you talk about that that lit a fire for you to serve and to to lead is really about what I think are the invisible wounds of, of trust. Yes, absolutely. Because these are the unspoken, well, many times spoken, obviously with many protests in the, in the, in the 60s and 70s. But the lack of trust you talk about or the gaining of trust and fostering that as a leader— uh, but I think, you know, mending that lack of trust as a— as an invisible wound, was something that needed to happen. And you certainly saw that at a, at a younger age. I mean, 1970, 71 is when you were injured, right? Yes, I was wounded on the 5th of May, 1970. Yesterday. Second time. But I was, I was very seriously wounded that day, yesterday, uh, 51 years ago. Yeah, that's your alive day. My alive day, that's correct. That's I learned that. We didn't call it that back in those days, but the current generation of veterans invented that uh, as a way of remembering, coping with that, yeah, remembering how blessed they are to continue to be able to go on. And when so, so I've adopted that. Yeah. So a live day plus one, we sit here, and you, you not only saw the lack of trust and in the American people and and wanting to somehow. Uh, continue your leadership but at the same time you were injured 
And it, to me, and, and, and I have the privilege to ask someone right from the horse's mouth looking forward at that time, because we look back. We, you know, we know what you've done. Um, looking forward from 71 on, uh, you not only felt the need to mend the, the, the country, but you were mending yourself. Yes. I, I read somewhere a commander, somebody had mentioned to you, the Army takes amputees. Yeah. I had asked the uh, chief of orthopedics there, uh, colonel at the time, he retired as a brigadier general, Phil Deffer, who has since passed, but he understood the, uh, of, of all the people I've met, he understood very early on the combination of emotional and physical healing mm. for those who've been, been seriously wounded mm. in combat mm. and structured the environment there at Valley Forge General Hospital mm-hmm. so that we learn to help ourselves, we learn to help each other. Uh, I think I made a comment in that book. There may have been elevators there, but I never used one because we couldn't. He wouldn't right. let us right. use the stairs. Don't use a wheelchair if you're a single amputee. That was forbidden if you're a single amputee. Open your own doors. Help each other. Learn to change your own dressings. So to, to I didn't know this at the time, but to regain a sense of independence, yeah. of, of getting back up again. It's not the getting knocked down in life that counts. It's getting back up and going on even stronger than before. My life's not ever going to be the same, and None of us goes looking for trouble in their lives, but it finds most of us. Mm. And how we react to that, it seems to me, uh, defines us as, as a person. Tell and me about that. We, um, how, how did you react to that, or how, how did I, you I find initi- yourself? I initially wasn't very good at it. I, I, I really, I, through high school and uh, West Point, I, I had never run into anything that I do hard work and perseverance I couldn't conquer out mm. you know sort of unbeatable yeah. you know so uh, but here I was and uh, try as I may I just could not heal my leg and foot and ankle mm. uh, and I was shrinking emotionally mm. into myself I'm sure it wasn't a whole lot of fun to be around uh, with my wife Denise and our daughter Margie who was eight at the time. Denise was always there every day. Mm. When I come out of surgery, she was sitting there, hold my hand. Didn't, not a lot of words passed, didn't have to. She was just always there, as she is today. And so uh, I, I kept, you know, I lost a lot of weight, you know, as typical wounds like that. and systemic infection I lost about 40 pounds and was night sweats and couldn't control the fevers and uh, and I, I I said to myself I've, I've got to get a hold of this I got to, come on I'm, I'm in free fall here so that was acutely during that time yes that was from May until early December when I asked Dr. Deffer I said what are my options I, I knew I had a I had a fight back here I mean in a different way but you and, wanted to fight again you wanted to get back in the army I did and I said to him what are my options he said well I can you know we can continue to 
surgically repair your foot. I believe it's something that looks like a foot. And you'll be able to walk a few blocks probably without a whole lot of pain. And I'm thinking to myself, as he's telling me this, I don't want to live like that. I said, what about staying in the Army? He's not not with a foot and a leg that looks like that. But the Army does keep amputees. Now, I knew from going to the physical therapy clinic there at Valley Forge, watching my fellow soldier amputees, they were getting around and a lot of, had a lot more energy and focus and drive than I had. I learned later it was a woman, Dr. Anna Rosenbaum, mm-hmm. who was a chief of personnel under George Marshall when he was Secretary of Defense, mm-hmm. who led the drive to allow those who are otherwise physically disabled, according to the rules, uh, I don't like particularly like that word, but yeah. uh, who were physically unqualified to remain on active duty. And she changed that. And and, and as a woman physician at ta- that time, that was yeah. obviously much more rare. But Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, uh, she was also Jewish. So, huh. I mean, combination of all that, 1950 was a remarkable achievement for a woman like that. And I've, I've since looked her up, and she I very much admired and mm. thanked her for that opportunity. When Dr. Deffer said, the Army does keep amputees, I said, okay, I, I understand what my choices are. And this was December. My wife and daughter and I will talk it over over Christmas. And we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, tough choice, uh, as it is for any amputee who later decides to have their limb amputated. It still is. And that's still going on. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I got a lot of support at home. Uh, my wife had bought me a... Uh, recliner, lazy boy recliner, because when people had come to visit me on convalescent leave at home, I'd been lying on the couch with my leg elevated before the amputation. And she said, Fred, come on, uh, need a little more dignity than that. Uh, You don't want to talk to people lying down. So she bought me this chair and it stayed in the family for a long, huh. for a long time it's black and hide she she made it black she said for the black horse and oh and that's Viet, nice vietnam so so that was uh, she she was like the uh, orthopedic surgeon that said don't take the elevator you know right exactly i i decided to uh with the help of my family and and i knew the skilled medics doctors nurses there at valley forge and my fellow amputees that okay i can do this but it's an irreversible decision. Uh, need to think about it. And uh, was not assured to be able to stay in the Army. But I, when I went back in January, I said to Dr. Deffer, I made my choice. I want you to amputate my leg. Yeah. And uh, and I did the day after the Super Bowl in 1971. Hmm. And I immediately started, I mean, a lot of pain after the amputation, but yeah. I immediately started feeling better. I had a goal. I had to drive. I had mm. some fight inside of me. I knew I could get back up with a lot of help from those there in the hospital, my fellow soldiers, my family. Uh, none of us do anything in life by ourselves. There's always a lot of hands to help us if if we'll let them in. Even though you had all the support around you, you made that call and said, let's go. Absolutely. I, th- I think... I. I firmly believe all of us, 
no matter what our station life, have got some steel inside of us. Mm. And when things really get tough, uh, and they do, and people have had far more difficult things in life than, than we have, but I think you reach inside yourself and you grab a hold of that steel mm. and you say, we're, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to get this done. And we're going to get back up and we're going to go on and we're going to be wiser and stronger than we were before. Uh, I've often said, I believe through all that experience, I was a better father, I was a better husband. Mm. I was a better soldier better leader and commander now i don't prescribe that as a leader development path for everybody but but nonetheless i think you right sort of you sort of play the hand you get dealt you know and and you you take what you have and you make the most of it and and you just get back up and and go on with not no assurances, no guarantees. I didn't even know if the Army would keep me. And the doctors there, uh, Dr. Jim Herndon, actually who lives, I believe, in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, did my amputation, did my medical boards, and said how motivated I was to stay on active duty. Uh, that lit that fire further for you. Yeah, absolutely. and that, that gave you hope. Yes. And gave you uh, sort of inspiration. How did that better commander, better leader, better husband, better soldier. H- how did that translate into the work that you wound up doing in leading all of your troops into the in, in up to the 90s? I think the, 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 the basic part of that is this fulfillment of trust. Mm. I believe that as that Non-commissioned officer said to me when I was a three-star corps commander right before we attacked in Desert Storm and I was talking about our plan, stopped me and said, don't worry, General, we trust you. Mm-hmm. And uh, initially I, I could barely respond because I remembered all the broken trust in Vietnam. And, and that's precisely what leaders are, are doing. They are commanding and leading in a way that develops that trust between the leader and the led and then sustains it uh, in a way they prepare their organizations for whatever it is they're going to go do, give them the skills necessary, and then make the right choices and judgments during the conduct of the operation. And then they trust the leadership to see to it that all that sacrifice, some who lose their lives, will add up there's something meaningful that we call victory, mm. achieving the objective. That trust also is, don't worry, General, we trust you. And, and it was my responsibility as a commander to fulfill that trust. And I, I believe it further extends to when young men and women across the country raise their right hand and swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, there's an implied trust between them and the American people that when their duties and mission are complete and they return home, that we will be there for them. Employment opportunities, educational opportunities, and settlement back into our communities, and be there for them 
if they need assistance in adjustments or in taking care of their visible and invisible wounds. And that's why Home Base is such a powerful organization because it was founded and dedicated itself, its mission, to fulfilling that trust. Cheers to that with our, our coffee. You know, the the trust doesn't come out of nowhere. And it takes time and it takes conversation. It takes listening. And so when you think about what Homebase does and the trust that people put in Homebase to take care of our veterans and families, what, what is it about the the teamwork in a place like Southwest Florida Home Base or Center of Ex- Excellence that has, that started in 2009 that you're a part of, of course, um, in Boston. What is it about that team that fosters and fulfills that trust? I believe that everyone on the team is totally committed to that. And when veterans and their families come to Home Base, however they meet home base, either in a casual conversation, formally coming into the clinic, uh, registering and seeking help, beginning with physical training and through the fitness program, the wellness program. However they meet home base, they will meet someone who is totally devoted and committed to fulfilling that trust of being there for them when they come home and that they understand who the veteran and their family is, where they've been, what they've done, what they've sacrificed for the nation, and that it is their commitment that the veteran feels immediately. Hmm. And we have heard this in countless testimonials. Home base gets it. They know us. They're like one of us. And they feel comfortable, at home, secure there. I, I felt that in your command and leadership, I, I look at that analogy of the respect, but also the, the trust in a place like home base is almost like that central command. And, and you know, it's not overnight, it takes time, but what I feel is so important is that the, the post 9-11 veterans, a lot of their f- parents or a lot of their family members, are guess what? Vietnam vets. Yes, they are. And, or if they weren't, they grew up in this culture where they were very aware of that lack of um, understanding and, and the fact that veterans would come home and, 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 and people would, you know, be at a, a diner next to them or, or where have you in a taxi cab and say, you know, why the heck did you go over there? It was, it was worthless. Um, and so there's been mending. And people like you um, and others in, 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 in leadership have really um, taken on that, that burden and I think reversed that invisible, that invisible wound. There's probably more to go, right? We, we have, right? I think it's a um, constant challenge. Um, goes both ways. I believe the the military has to do what they do to fulfill the trust of the American people and and the leadership. And concurrently, 
the American people have to trust that their military is going to go uh, do what they have to do in accordance with uh, our Constitution and supporting and, and defending it. Does that enter a general's mind overseas? Oh, absolutely. So you need to focus, obviously, and you're going to make a lot of decisions based on listening to your team. But obviously there's going to be some things that you second guess or you know mistakes that are made. But how, how does the American people back home come into your come into your brain when you're there? Well, one of those growth things that happened to me when I was going through my own experience in Valley Forge and with my fellow soldiers there, first in a, was not an amputee ward, it was an orthopedic ward. And then after I had my leg amputated in the amputee ward and my fellow amputees and getting to know them individually, uh, getting to know their stories, where they're from, keeping in touch with them to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the, the wisdom I gained from all of that was when I looked at a formation of soldiers, or was out around a formation of soldiers, whether it was the 146,000 British and American soldiers mm-hmm. of 7th Corps, whether it was a, a small platoon I was of 30 or 40 soldiers or 20 soldiers I was visiting with, that I saw them as a team, as a group, as an entity to go act in certain ways tactically to achieve our mission uh, at least cost to them. But I also saw them as individuals, mm. as each soldier with their own life, family, connections, aspirations in life, either remain in the military or not remain in the military. And I, I believed as a senior leader I needed to reconcile those two in doing what my duty was, which was accomplish the mission that I was given for the nation, but at least cost to them, because every mission has a cost. And so it was my duty. You have to balance that. Absolutely. It's always the mission comes first, but it's always soldiers always factor into that. And what you want to do is as skillfully as you can and and, and preparing your troops as, as well as you can. And, and remember in 1991, we were, we were 15, 18 years into a transformation of the United mm. States Army from the condition that it was in in the middle 70s. In the 70s. From Vietnam yeah, sure. until then. Uh, and there was... L- a generation of leaders after generation of leaders devoted to seeing to it that our army would be trained and ready, that it would could fight and win, that it would be trained to a razor's edge, it could fight outnumbered and win. And I think that uh, each generation of senior leadership must see to it that during peacetime that investments are made, modernization is continued so that that generation, whenever it gets called on, and sometimes we never know nationally, that, uh, at least in my own case, that the Army will have that razor's edge of readiness from which they can adapt to the circumstances of the times and go on and achieve that mission 
at least cost to them. Yeah. And I believe that is also fulfillment of trust. It's the dual commitment as a senior leader to see to it that the sacrifice and the blood and the wounds and the, and the, those who give that last full measure, as Lincoln said, add up to achieving the mission. The mission. Thank you so much to General Fred Franks for this conversation and for all your service over the years for your trust and leadership. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please join us next week as we continue the conversation in part two. Have a great day. If you like this episode today, please share it with your friends and family and make sure to subscribe. Also, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us a lot. Remember, coming up September 25th, 2001 is the 12th annual Run to Home Base. So to register for the 5K or 9K run or walk, go to rundahomebase.org. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.